Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage for today comes from Philippians 1, 18 through 26. Listen for what God is saying to you. What do I think about this? Just this. Since Christ is proclaimed in every possible way, whether from dishonest or true motives, I'm glad and I'll continue to be glad. I'm glad because I know that this will result in my release through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It is my expectation and hope that I won't be put to shame in anything. Rather, I hope with daring courage that Christ's greatness will be seen in my body, now as always, whether I live or die. Because for me, living serves Christ, and dying is even better. If I continue to live in this world, I get results from my work. But I don't know what I prefer. I'm torn between the two because I want to live this life and be with Christ, which is far better. However, it's more important for me to stay in this world for your sake. I'm sure of this. I will stay alive and remain with all of you to help your progress and the joy of your faith and to increase your pride in Jesus Christ through my presence when I visit you again. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of the scripture. Good morning. Move that away. Are we good? Is my uh, Britney Spears microphone working here? Um, my name is Joel. If I haven't met you, um, I'm not the regular preacher here, uh, so you only have to deal with me for one, uh, one week. But I'm going to go ahead and start out with two confessions. Um, first, I'm white, um, which hopefully is fairly obvious, sometimes different shades of pink and red. Um, but I am. I'm white. I'm straight. I'm cisgendered. I'm able-bodied. I'm educated. And I'm a male. In terms of the privilege lottery, I won the jackpot. But if you ask me who I am, I'll likely tell you my name and what I do, and that I'm an ally in my life as well as in my scholarship. And so I speak this morning as just that, as an ally, limited in talking about issues of race to some degree, but thankful for the opportunity to say what I can. The second confession that is that I'm not really a preacher per se, um, although in a previous life I was trained as one, uh, the problem is that I married a preacher um, and realized that she was much better than I am at it. And so I decided to try something else. Uh, I became an academic. Uh, so I apologize if this is a little dry at times. And if your neighbor starts to nod off, you can give him a, a little holy nudge with your elbow or something. And I promise Emily will be back next week. Um, but let's go to Paul. Paul's world was closing in. His future was looking dire as he found himself a prisoner of the Roman Empire. He knew the chances of getting out were growing slimmer and slimmer with each passing day, though he held out some hope, and, and in fact he was able to get out only to be imprisoned not long after, and this time for good. But as he wrote the words that we just heard, 
to a church that he deeply loved. He betrays apparently, or what I assume is apparently genuine existential doubt about whether further resisting his impending judgment and eventually death was worthwhile. He confesses that after all, he yearns deeply to be united with his Lord, something that in his mind required death. But upon further reflection, he seems to set his eyes back to this world on this side of death, to his people, to his mission. He says, it's more important for me to stay in this world for your sake. I will stay alive and remain with all of you to help your progress and the joy of your faith. So on the question of whether resistance is worthwhile, especially in spite of seemingly hopeless circumstances, Paul seems to say rather resolutely, yes, keep fighting, always. Resistance is not futile. It was the turn of the century, 1901 in fact, uh, on the south side of Chicago when Reverdy Ransom and Richard R. Wright Jr. met for the first time. Two African Methodist Episcopal or AME pastors on the rise, both of whom would eventually become bishops in their denomination, but not yet. That's another story. Reverdy Ransom was a rising star among black preachers in America. He had just been assigned the pastorate of Bethel AME Church here in Chicago just a few years prior, perhaps the most respectable AME churches in the country and one of the most sought-after pastorates. Richard R. Wright Jr., who was Ransom's junior by several years, was in the process of finishing his education at the University of Chicago, one of the few black students of divinity there. He was the student of someone named Shaler Matthews uh, and even traveled to Germany to study with Adolf von Harnack, names that may mean something to some of you, but if not, don't fret. All you need to know is that his association with these thinkers meant that his future in the academy was bright, or at least as promising as it could be for a black man playing a white man's game. Ransom and Wright were both on trajectories that would lead them to positions of influence and prestige, and that didn't require them to do what they actually did in Chicago. Dramatic population growth among African Americans during the first decade of the century in Chicago, combined with white hostility manifested in unfair housing laws, created a ghetto of sorts on the South Side, which would eventually become known as the Black Belt. Ransom and Wright described the poverty of black Chicago as like a fog that never lifted on the South Side. The economic depression was oppressive and seemingly insurmountable for the residents who lived there. Wright and Ransom, whose careers didn't require that they engage the oppression and poverty of their brothers and sisters on the South Side, Felt themselves, felt themselves compelled by the faith they'd received to stake their claim with, their, with this neighborhood and work for the redemption of black Chicago, each establishing uh, what they called institutional churches, which functioned in part as traditional worshiping communities on one hand, but on the other hand were kind of like missions for social service, um, committed to helping uplift black Chicagoans through education, training, advocacy, protest, and charitable services. So each of them, in weighing whether to stay in the Windy City and fight the, 
uh, fight the racial discrimination, housing segregation, and economic oppression of their neighbors, or leave town for a better life for themselves, Wright and Ransom determined to fight always, regardless of the consequence or the immediate results. Resistance is not futile. So if you've been around here for a bit, you've probably heard us talk about UVC as being a church without walls. Striving to manifest in this neighborhood what folks like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. described as the beloved community, where racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice are replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood, brotherhood, and siblinghood. For King, the beloved community was not a lofty utopian goal to be confused with the rapturous image of the peaceable kingdom in which lions and lambs would coexist in idyllic harmony. Rather, the beloved community was for him a realistic, achievable goal that could be realized in this world through creative, nonviolent means of resistance. And so here at UVC, we narrate our efforts to live into that vision of the beloved community by talking about breaking down walls, all the walls that separate. But if I'm being honest, this metaphoric language of walls needs some explanation, some explanation. What are these walls? Who built them? Where are they located? Why do they seem so hard to break down? If we're going to be co-conspirators in resistance, then we should have some idea what it is that we're resisting. So in an effort to make sense of these walls, especially those that pertain to race and racism, I'm going to do something uh, I was hesitant to do. I'm going to drop some theory on y'all. Um, but then I, I was hesitant, but I remember that y'all are pretty smart folks, so... This should be fun. So there's this guy named Pierre Bordeaux. He's French, which is okay, because we love everyone here at UBC. <laughs> but he had this idea, this notion that he called habitus, which he defines in really complex language that, if I'm being honest, uh, I still really don't understand, um, even when it's in English. Um, but it basically means this. Habitus consists of socialized norms or tendencies that guide behavior and thinking. It is the way society becomes deposited in persons in the form of lasting dispositions or trained capacities and structured propensities to think, feel, and act in determinate ways, which then guide them. In other words, it is neither the result of free will nor determined solely by outside social structures but created by a kind of interplay between the two over time. In this sense, habitus is created and reproduced unconsciously, without any intentional attempts at coherence, without any conscious efforts at all. Habitus turns history into nature, so that what has been historically and socially constructed, say, for instance, racial prejudice or discrimination, becomes perceived as the way things are naturally. And it imbues privilege with moral significance so that the dispositions, beliefs, and practices of the dominant group, say, white heteronormative patriarchy, 
is uncritically granted moral superiority so that what I think, what I believe, what I do as a white, straight male is assumed as pure and right automatically while that of my sibling of color, what they think or do, is treated with suspicion. Think, for instance, uh, of the way that blackness and whiteness are portrayed in media, right? With blackness often signifying evil or the demonic, whereas whiteness signifies purity or in- innocence. So this is, this is the notion of habitus that I want us to work with, and if your brain hurts just a little bit, that's okay, um, because it's actually a pretty tough concept. But I want us to think about it because this is how racism becomes internalized in each of us. And it affects not only those of us who are deemed white, but a habitus privileging white perceptions, practices, and beliefs, and denigrating those of people of color is woven into our individual and collective selves, regardless of what racial category we find ourselves in. For people of color, the depositing of a shared cultural habitus of whiteness often results in what we call internalized racism. As people of color are victimized by racism, it becomes internalized. That is, we begin to develop ideas, beliefs, actions, and behaviors that support support racism, often unconsciously. This internalized racism has its own systemic reality and its own negative consequences in the lives and communities of people of color. Individuals, institutions, and communities of color are often unconsciously and habitually rewarded for supporting white privilege and power and punished or excluded for denying it. This system of oppression often coerces people of color to let go of or compromise their better judgment, thus diminishing everyone as the diversity of human experience and wisdom is excluded. Although Paul didn't have the sociological terminology of habitus or internalized racism, I think he actually recognized some of this at work in himself um, when he wrote a letter to the Roman Christians, talking about an internal war of his will that was going on inside of him. He said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Paul realized that there were larger forces at play in himself beyond his own will and his capacity to reason. He called these principalities and powers, which we might describe today with the language of systemic racism, heteronormativity, or patriarchy. The difficulty with this kind of racism, internalized racism, what I'm calling a habitus of whiteness, is that you also don't just think it away. That is, you can't just decide to no longer be racist or be shaped by racist ideologies. It's not how it works. It's too strong. The walls are too thick, too tall to be toppled with the mind alone. It takes something besides logic or right thinking to resist and ultimately to subvert this kind of socially infused racism within our individual selves. It takes alternative practices, which are both mental and bodily. 
It requires substituting new symbols and language that resist racial discrimination. It calls for conscious reminders and rituals that at once work to deconstruct the unconscious racist within us, and also constructing new ways of being in the world that are attentive to the forces, the forces of racism and that actively seek to resist them. And as important as what I'm gonna call the macro level resistance movements are, such as like the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s or Black Lives Matter movement now, and those really are important and necessary as the heart and soul of organized protest, I wanna suggest that that's only part of the project of resistance. There's also something that must happen within us, inside of us. There must be a change in the way that we view the world and the way that we see each other. As Paul put it, there is some dying to ourselves that must happen so that we can be made new, so that we can be reborn. So I'm going to suggest another kind of resistance that must occur as a complement to this macro-level kind of resistance. We'll call it micro-level resistance. A form of protest that happens on the individual level that is marked by a certain kind of creativity and that despite being symbolically provocative tends to be less clearly efficacious or productive. Because like riding a bike, racism sticks with us. It's part of us, whether we want it there or not. And in order to overcome it, we must employ strategies of resistance that work to reshape our thoughts, reshape our perceptions, our beliefs, and our habits. This is precisely the work of micro-level resistance. To reform the largely unconscious part of ourselves that has been shaped by social and historical forces, micro-level resistance is crucial. So what does it look like, this micro-level resistance? Well, let's start with the Bible. Since we're at church, and I'm supposed to be preaching, maybe you remember the story of Moses in the Hebrew Bible. Initially, before Moses was born, the Israelites were welcomed into the land of Egypt because of Joseph's service to the kingdom. But when the Israelite people grew too large, to such a size as to be a threat, first the government enslaved them, and then systematically tried to oppress them, in order to quell the threat, in fact, genocide was ordered. All baby boys of Israelite birth were ordered to be killed. However, because of a couple brave women, including some Egyptian ones, no less, who were perceptive enough to see beyond the fear motivating the violence and see the humanity and vulnerability of the other, the Israelite mother and her child, Moses, then a baby whose life was in jeopardy, was saved by his sister who floated him in a basket down the Nile River and was found by several Egyptian women, including a royal daughter. And they determined to resist the violent edict and opt for life, a sly form of resistance that didn't necessarily have immediate national consequences, but eventually led to the liberation of the people through Moses. By the faithful micro-level resistance of a few women, liberation was made possible through Moses. There are also creative types of this kind of micro-level resistance in our world today, 
One that I particularly like, and maybe you've seen this as well, is the work of the Simple Way community in Philadelphia. And they protest, among other things, gun violence. This Christian community buys guns that have been used in violent crimes and melts them down to create gardening tools with them. Living into the biblical prophecy that when God gets everything God wants, the people will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and there will be war no more. There's also this group of folks in San Francisco, a city which actually has an ordinance that any tree planted within the city limits cannot bear fruit, ostensibly to keep the sidewalks pure of splattered fruit. However, more perceptive observers have recognized that it's really an attempt to control the city's large homeless population. So a group of concerned residents have begun what they call guerrilla grafting, which is surprisingly illegal, the work of grafting branches of fruit-bearing trees onto the city's non-fruit-bearing deciduous residents so that they will produce fruit the following season. And while the fruit of these trees while the fruit these trees produce is negligible um, when con considered in relation to the need of the homeless of the city, and many of the grafts are actually removed by the city, grafting is a performative act of resistance that speaks volumes about the desires and the will of concerned folks for the well-being of San Francisco's most vulnerable citizens. And when it comes to this micro-level resistance in terms of racism, there are scores of examples, ranging from how to deal with your racist coworker to how to construct internalized forms of racism in people and communities of color. And they all share essentially this same move. They work to decenter whiteness and elevate the concerns, beliefs, perceptions, desires, and experiences of people of color. This is perhaps nowhere clearer today than in the movement-inspiring statement, Black Lives Matter. Co-founded by several black women, Black Lives Matter is an explicit statement of resistance of both micro and macro level importance, affirming the lives of all black people and placing at the center those who have been historically marginalized. And so in trying to think more about this, that is, what it means for us to be an anti-racist church and to practice micro-resistance. Uh, I asked one of our own here at uh, HPW, uh, Grant Cousseur, to share a few words about how he does this in his own life. So I think we have a video. Again, my name is Grant Crusoe, um, and I wanted to share one of the ways that I kind of micro-resist uh, when it comes to different forms of oppression, but specifically around racism. Um, I know it may not seem like it does a whole lot, but one of my kind of smaller internal ways is just um, purely economic. So nothing new, but just finding businesses that I would often usually support. Um, and then if there are things that come up that uh, might seem racist or disenfranchise others based on their race, um, I find ways to not support those businesses. Um, so it's more than just the kind of, oh, buy black, like I want to do that anyway. Um, and I still seek to do that anyway. But uh, when I know that there are businesses that I usually support or occasionally even have to support that have been uh, historically racist in some way or 
are checking their racism. Uh, I take my little five or ten dollars somewhere else, and it may not, you know, make the biggest difference in the grand scheme of things. But for me, at least, I know that's one way that I'm not helping support someone that isn't helping to support me or people that look like me or come from where I come from. Um, so that is one of my ways of micro resisting oppression, particularly racism in our United States of American context. All right. Grant was kind enough to record that video, even though he's speaking at one of the other sites. Um, but I imagine there are plenty of other examples in addition to Grant's um, here in this community. Uh, things that we could tell, stories we could share um, that would talk about this kind of micro-resistance um, that would witness to it. And one of the central practices or habits or rituals of resistance that we have as Christians is actually this table, which we'll move toward in just a bit. Um, but it signifies, as much as anything else, the struggle against oppression, against discrimination, and against violence that we have, as much as anything else. At the table, we remember that Jesus was himself trampled by the very forces of evil and oppression that those people of color in our country have encountered throughout American history and still today. At this table, we recall one whose body was brutalized and whose life was extinguished because those who held power were threatened by it. At the table, hierarchies are leveled and arbitrary discriminators dissolve as we realize that every person needs bread and drink for sustenance. Every week, we rehearse a counter-narrative of micro-level resistance to the discrimination and racism that many of us experience in our everyday lives. The meal is a protest, a liturgy of resistance. At the table, we proclaim that God's future has no place for racism, for discrimination, or for violence. In breaking the bread and pouring the cup, we celebrate the subversive power of the beloved community in dismantling systems of evil like racism and we receive our charge to be co-conspirators in this work. One final word. This kind of micro-level resistance that we're talking about assumes that this work is a long game, a marathon, not a sprint. It requires a healthy optimism that the moral arc of the universe, though long, is in fact bending towards justice a resolute hope that in the end, God will get everything that God wants. And it requires a firm belief, even if seemingly naive, that our small efforts of resistance, which may not yield much, are crucial pieces of God's work of liberation and justice. Paul seems to know this, choosing resistance in the face of death. Reverend e. Ransom and Richard R. Wright seem to know it too. In fact, Ransom was forced out of his church just four years after founding it, and Wright's mission and settlement house here on the south side closed only a year after its inception. And yet the work of these two helped to lay the institutional and intellectual foundation for Martin Luther King Jr. and the black civil rights movement a half century later. We are engaged in this same work, striving to be a community without walls in a city and a world obsessed 
with building and maintaining walls, metaphorical ones and real ones. This work is hard. It's going to take a lifetime and then some. But hear this. Resistance, whether it's on the macro level or the micro level or whatever level there is, resistance is not futile. 